0: Well, good morning, Newcastle, and a very Merry Christmas to you and to your family. Um, It's fun to just look around this morning because I don't know a lot of you, (laughs) and there's something exciting about days like today and being able to see so many family members and just being able to embrace a day like today that's unique for our church Uh, for us all to be gathered at one time, to be able to have family and friends uh, joining with us today. And I will say this, uh, y'all look good today, so well done. Uh, It's a joy to be able to just spend uh, most of the remainder of our time this morning uh, being ministered to by God's Word Uh, Just really letting it saturate us as we think about the holiday season and the time that we get to share together this morning. And so I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. And if you need a Bible, we have two uh, great-looking men here who will make their way to the back of the room. If you just put your hand in the air, they'll make sure that you get one so that you can follow along with us as we dive into Matthew chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I just want to just express my gratitude on behalf of the other pastors uh, in response to what Ben was just talking about. Um, We are never, we never cease to be blown away by the kindness and the generosity of Newcastle. Uh, This church has been through a lot over the last year and there's, um, it's a joy it really is a joy to be able to serve you. And I know that if any of the other pastors were up here, they would say the exact same thing. And so thank you for your love, your kindness, your teachability. Please don't ever change those things. It is truly a, a, a pleasure to be able to be a part of this church family. Well, mentioned, mention we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. That's going to be the focus of our meditation together. I have always been... Fascinated at the details surrounding uh, this uh, account of Jesus and his birth, which we're actually going to see is actually uh, after the time of his birth. Uh, But I want to spend our time this morning meditating on this passage uh, as a way to set the tone for your worship of Jesus. Maybe do so in a fresh way. We are all no doubt familiar with the Christmas story, the Christmas narratives, especially in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. Uh, but my hope today would be to bring maybe just some uh, insight in some ways that maybe you haven't thought about before and to bring it to life for you. So I want to encourage you to stand. We, we love around here to uh, stand and honor the public reading of God's Word. So we're going to read this morning from Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to cover the first 12 verses this morning. So read with me from Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went away. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So we're going to stop this morning. i going to ask you to go ahead and have a seat, and let's pray as we ask for God to bless our time of study this morning. Uh, indeed, Father, now we do ask for your kindness. We so love and appreciate this story, and many of us no doubt have heard it before, uh, but we ask for your favor as we seek to uh, bring new life to it today. We seek to better understand the the characters involved and to understand, Lord, how you desire us to respond to the good news that Jesus Christ is born. So would you show your kindness to us in that regard today? Uh, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this... Last year with our students, we did a Bible study on Wednesday nights about the encounters uh, that people throughout the Gospels had with Jesus. And I have found that fascinating even with the birth narrative and all the characters that are at play. Uh, Now… To certainly understand, not all of these people that are in Matthew chapter 2 have a direct encounter with Jesus, but no doubt all of them to some degree have an encounter with the truth and the reality that Jesus, the King of the Jews, the Savior of the world, has been born. And I think that there is something to be learned from each of them Today And that's what we're going to do this morning. I just want to, uh, no main points, nothing flashy, but I just want to walk back through this story. And I just want to look at the four main players in this story to see what their encounter with Jesus looks like. And in particular, what they tell us. And how we should respond or seek to respond in light of that encounter. So let's look at those four different encounters with the incarnate Christ here today. And I want to begin with the primary antagonist in this story. uh, That you are no doubt familiar with, the man, King Herod. And we're going to call King Herod in this story, the intimidated king. Uh, Herod, the intimidated king. We're introduced to Herod here in verse 1, and the time in which the story takes place is during the reign of Herod, who is known throughout history as Herod the Great, a a political puppet of Rome in many ways, uh, not a true rightful king for the Jewish people. Uh, By the time he had been, uh, by the time of this story, Herod had been reigning for uh, nearly 30 years, over 30 years of the Jewish people. And that's a long time uh, for a king to be reigning. And there was a real mixed response to his reign and rule. In some ways, he was popular due to his massive building projects. He was a man with uh, big ideas and big infrastructure. And he was a pivotal player in the expansion and really the development of the second temple in Jerusalem. And so that was obviously a big, uh, important thing to the Jews. And so he was popular in some ways because of that. And yet, history tells us that Herod... Was a man who was very territorial about his throne, or if we were to put it another way, he was very paranoid about his throne. He absolutely hated anyone who dared oppose him in any light to his authority. In 29 BC, he killed his wife for uh, reasons of jealousy, assuming her to be having an affair, which he had no grounds or basis for, but had her taken care of. Over the course of his lifetime, he killed three of his sons, and it was said that his brother escaped death himself by dying. It was rumored that Augustus once said that it was safer to be Herod's sow than to be his son. That's the type of player we're talking about at the center of this story. Merry Christmas, right? And that's the context for these wise men as they enter into Jerusalem and come to the the throne, to the palace here of King Herod. And so you can imagine his concern in verse 2 when he hears the question from the mouths of the magi, where is the king? Where is the king who has been born? Not surprisingly, verse 3, Herod's response was one of concern. In fact, verse 3 says Herod was troubled. In fact, he was so troubled, all Jerusalem was troubled with him. It shows us the influence of this caravan of Gentiles who was coming through. Let's just face it, these people knew what Herod was capable of. You don't want Herod upset. So all Jerusalem was troubled about Herod being troubled. And it's interesting because a true king of Israel would have joined in the joy of this news. But instead, Herod is filled with fear. Anxiety and intimidation. How dare someone else oppose him and challenge for the throne? Alarm bells are going off in Herod's head, but he doesn't want to show that. He plays it cool. After all, we got these foreign dignitaries in town, don't want to make a fuss. And so he secretly uh, tries to understand the nature surrounding these events so that he can plot his bigger scheme. And after figuring out the time and the town of the birth, Herod puts his trust in these men to bring back a good report about the specifics. After all, he wants to go and worship this king as well, right? It's only later in the chapter do we realize Herod's true evil motives. And while Herod's reaction seems extreme to many of us here this morning, the truth is it's not far from the evil intent of all human hearts, is it? If we really understand this for what it is, I think we understand that pride is what seeks to silence the threat of Jesus' authority. All right, this is true of anyone who rejects the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. To say that someone or something is Lord is to say that it has ruling power over your life, what you do, how you live, how you seek to please that very thing or person. But because we have been born into sin, we all, by nature, like Herod, seek to silence the threat of Jesus' authority. We don't like it. We don't like the idea of someone else ruling and reigning as king over our lives. By nature, we don't see Jesus and his authority as good. We see it as a threat because that means I'm not the one in charge anymore. And for many, rather than submit to and worship Jesus, according to Romans 1, they seek to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That authority that they know to be true that Jesus rightfully has, they seek to silence it. It is not natural for any of us to rejoice at the news that Jesus is king. We all, by nature, fight against it. But while some of you might be intimidated by Jesus, others of you may be simply indifferent, like the scribes in the story. As we look at the scribes and the chief priests here, we'll call these the the indifferent scholars. The indifferent scholars. We're introduced in verse 4 to Herod's team of Experts, these chief priests and these scribes. The chief priests would have been considered uh, the current and former high priests as well as some of the the high-ranking priest officials uh, in the Jewish uh, uh, religious system. Uh, We could say that these people represented the Jewish system of worship. And then you have the scribes who were the legal experts on Jewish law. They knew the law. They knew how to interpret it, how to teach it to the Jews. In other words, they represented Jewish law. So you have the representatives of Jewish worship and the representatives of Jewish law. This is an A team here. This is is the team you want researching for you to consult with King Herod. And it's interesting because Matthew's pairing here of the chief priests and the scribes is actually the beginning of a partnership between those two parties that would constantly oppose Jesus throughout the Gospels up to the very point of his death. Always working, always conspiring, and here we see the origins and the start of it in their united efforts to work against Jesus Herod turns to these men for answers on his current dilemma, and the good news is that they have the answer to the where question. Where is this child to be born? Verse 5 tells us, in Bethlehem of Judea. Bethlehem of Judea, as is written by the the prophet, and the prophet it's referring to is Micah. These are Micah's words in Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, actually combined a little bit with 2 Samuel, chapter 5, verse 2. So we see here this idea that this, this is not a secret, this is something that scripture has made known. It is something that they can understand to be true about Jesus and this child who has been born. And of all places, Bethlehem. And so they communicate this to Herod and then they do nothing. Nothing. They pass along this information, this marvelous, by the way, information, and then they choose to do nothing. This news of the greatest sort, and these men would have known that this is no ordinary king who was being born in Bethlehem. They would have associated this birth this news about the coming king of the Jews to be associated with God's long-promised Messiah, long-promised deliver that they had been waiting for for hundreds of years. This is truly, like the angel said, good news of great joy, and these men do nothing with it. They pass it along like it's just some data fact to know. It was like they were answering a Jeopardy question, but didn't really believe what they were saying. Much of Matthew 2 is presented in such a way to display the apathy of the Jewish people to their coming Messiah, and perhaps there's no place is that more clearly communicated than right here. These people knew the scriptures. They heard the report of the Magi. They knew exactly where to go, and yet they chose to do nothing. As if this news didn't change anything at all. I think there's a dangerous warning here. That knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. One word difference. But it makes all the difference, doesn't it? Here you had men who were very familiar with their Bibles. Obviously, they didn't have their own copies of their Bibles. But if they had, they had all these scrolls, all this facts, all this information that they knew about the coming Messiah. They regularly engaged in the worship practices of their day, yet their hearts were not moved by the news that the Savior had come. Such is how we can say there is a difference between knowing about Jesus and truly knowing Jesus. David Platt says, you can know the text well, yet still miss the point. And that's exactly true for these people. There are many in our churches today who know a lot about Jesus. There are so many people who have the knowledge, they have the facts, they've studied their Bibles, they've memorized Scripture, they've been exposed, they've been around it for the totality of their lives, perhaps. Perhaps many of you, even. But how many will Jesus one day say, depart from me, I never, what, knew you? You see, there is a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Knowing is is intimate. It describes a, a genuine relationship and it responds It is responsive to the truth about Jesus. So here's your Christmas warning today. Do not find yourself among the chief priests and the scribes, but rather look to our other two examples that we're going to look at here this morning because these are marvelous encounters. And the next one may surprise you a little bit, but the third person we're going to look at is not actually a person, but a place. We look at the encounter with Bethlehem, the insignificant village. And yes, Bethlehem may not be an actual person, but do you notice here in Micah's quotation that the scribes come to? Do you notice here how Bethlehem is a scribe personal pronouns? You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem is personified here. And Bethlehem is, no doubt, small. It is being told here that it is not least, though it is, on the surface, not that impressive. It was a small village located roughly five miles south of Jerusalem. If you were to put that into comparisons around here, if you uh, were to live in Tremont, perhaps, that would be about the same distance north to Morton. Not that we want to make Morton our Jerusalem, but I'm just saying for (laughs) perspective purposes. I hope I'm not going to cause a fight between Tremont and Morton this morning. but, But it is probably reasonable still to believe uh, that Bethlehem was similar in size to a place like Tremont in terms of population. And it were from maybe 1,000 to 3,000 people. Small little town like we're familiar with all over central Illinois here. It's a very humble and a very modest town. Nothing all that exciting or glamorous about it. But is that where the Magi are currently at? No. Where are the magi at right now? They're in Jerusalem. After all, it's fitting that the the future king, the future ruler of this great nation would come from the capital city, right? It's reasonable to think that. And yet... The king and savior of God's people does not dwell in a booming, important metropolis, but rather he resides in a humble, insignificant little village. And yet this village isn't even all that insignificant, is it? Sure, it may be in size, but not in historical importance. After all, who is the most famous figure to come out of Bethlehem before this? king david right david who began not as a royal prince but as what a humble lowly shepherd it's important for the context here right verse six the quotation from second samuel he will be a what a shepherd of my people It was here in Bethlehem where David was anointed the future king of God's people. And it was David from the tribe of Judah who was promised by God that a future son of his would one day sit on his throne forever. His kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. What was once an insignificant village becomes an important piece in God's redemptive story. And isn't that just like God to do? Choosing the most unlikely and the most unappealing of places to demonstrate his divine wisdom and power. My hope is that as you hear that, you hear a familiar ring to that. Because it's not just how God used Bethlehem. It's also how God works in salvation, isn't it? We understand that from what Scripture says, that God chooses the weak things of this world to accomplish His good purposes. In fact, look at what Paul has to say about this very idea in First Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You see, God delights to bring glory to his name by using the most unlikely of sources. It was true 2,000 years ago when he chose a small little village to be the unlikely birth spot of his beloved son. And it's true today when God chooses to save an unlikely sinner like you so that you might not boast in yourself, but you would boast in the Lord. God is in the business of using the weak and the insignificant things of this world to showcase his glory to everyone. If you are in the Lord today, rejoice at the awesome privilege that you have been granted because God's sovereign choice to use you for his purposes. But we still have one final group we have to consider this morning. And it is certainly the most prominent one that is seen from start to finish here in this story. And it is, of course, the the Magi. And we're going to refer to the Magi here this morning as the Inquisitive Outsiders. The Inquisitive Outsiders. They are the central characters throughout this section of Matthew's Gospel. Throughout history, they've gone by different names, wise men, Magi, we sing a song about them being kings. They're not kings, by the way, so correct that however you desire. Uh, but you see something, as you see that name magi, you observe something that looks a lot like that word magic, uh, but don't think of a, of a David Copperfield type of magic. Perhaps they were more like uh, astrologers, wise men, uh, since they were ones who, who knew to look for a star. They were men who uh, deciphered the, the signs of the age. They possibly utilized more mystical means to understand things like dreams and historical events, perhaps uh, very similar to the, the men that we see in the book of Daniel who ministered to King Nebuchadnezzar. And while they were not kings, they were no doubt men of power, influence, Prestige, and as we'll see later, great wealth. We are told that they come from the east, but we don't have any specifics. They just come from the east. Could have been from the regions around Babylon or Persia, the Arabian desert. We don't know. This is also fascinating considering Matthew is a gospel primarily written to which audience? To Jews. And yet, here you have Matthew focusing his attention on these foreign Gentile outsiders. So, why does he do this? Why the focus on these rich and powerful dignitaries? Well, in verse 2, it says that they saw the star. They saw his star, this supernatural occurrence, these events that caused this star to appear. And there's so much actually packed into verse 2 this morning. I just, I want you to see it. First of all, what is the significance of this star that has suddenly appeared? What, What separates this star from any other star in the sky? Most seem to see a connection between this event and the prophecy of Balaam in Numbers chapter 24 all the way back in the Old Testament, thousands of years before this. Uh, Balaam was a a man used uh, by God uh, supernaturally because he was appointed originally to curse God's people by the evil king of Moab named Balak. But rather than cause a cursing upon God's people, God forced Balaam to bless God's people prior to their entrance into the promised land. And in Numbers chapter 24 verse 17, we hear of a a prophecy in this blessing concerning one day a star, a star that will come from Jacob. Jacob and a scepter that will arise from Israel. So it is possible that the Magi saw this connection between uh, this star and this coming ruler, the scepter that will reign over God's people. But an even better question for us is this. How did they even know about this? Have you ever thought about that? How did these outsider, these men from hundreds of miles away, how do they even know that this is supposed to happen? It doesn't tell us. But it makes you wonder, doesn't it? I personally wonder. Don't know this for sure. But sometimes I like to hope of connections happening. And think about For an extent of time in Israel's history, they were in exile in lands of Babylon and Persia. I like to think of men like Daniel who had influence among the high-ranking officials, the wise men of the day, possibly sharing these scriptures with foreigners, giving them exposure. Men like Mordecai in Esther's day, all these men who had the opportunity to influence the outside culture with these Hebrew scriptures. But at the heart of all of this is a goal, right? Verse 2, we saw his star when it arose, and we have come to do what? To worship. These foreign outsiders are coming to worship a Jewish king. That is no small desire. They see something of great significance in this newborn ruler. Perhaps we could even say they understood something about this child that his own people in Israel were not getting, that they themselves didn't understand. And that was the fact that he was the long-awaited Messiah. That he was the one that Isaiah spoke of who would be the light to the Gentiles. Who would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And after the detour they hit in Jerusalem, they are sent on their way to the final destination of Bethlehem. And in verse 9 it says they get there. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest, supernaturally stopped over the place where he lay. Rather than X marks the spot, the star shows them where to go. The fact that they come to this place that is a house and not a stable tells us that it has been some time since Jesus has been born. According to verse 7 and verse 16, and Herod's scheme to get rid of the, the newborn children who were two years of age and under tells us that Jesus was most likely a toddler at this point. He was no longer a, a infant newborn babe, but a, a little child. So if your magi are looking in on your nativity set right now, you need to maybe move them across the room so that they're on their journey to go see Jesus. Okay, they're not there quite yet, but they're getting there. So you can still have them, just... Do some rearranging, right? But you can imagine Joseph's surprise when he gets that knock. That knock at the door. I don't know about you. I've, I've, I've had some interesting encounters with people at the door. I've had all kinds of salespeople. I've had Jehovah's Witnesses. I've had all kinds of people show up at my door. But nothing quite like this he opens the door to find a grand caravan of foreign emissaries outside his home. Men in royal garb, perhaps horses and, and chariots and camels, all these things that... This is like a parade that's happening in the middle of the night. Though they bring three gifts, there is good reason to believe that this is a, a, a much larger group than just three men. Again, it's this giant caravan that's causing this stir. But nothing would stop them from coming to see the one who they knew to be the rightful king of God's people. In fact, I love when they find the location. Notice what it says in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's what we call quadruple joy, by the way. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You cannot top that. The ultimate excitement: when they see the child, they do the only fitting thing that anyone in the presence of the divine would do. They fall on their faces. They posture themselves low so that Jesus might be high. They go low to show their rightful submission to the king, though he sits not on a throne, but on the lap of his human mother, Mary. And like any good party goers, they brought baby gifts, right? Not necessarily the gifts that you would get from Babies or Us or from Carter's. They're gifts that are fit for a king. Royal elements, perfumes, spices, gold, frankincense, myrrh. And we don't want to draw too much or too little from these gifts, but suffice it to say, these gifts were extravagant. They were beyond anything that Mary and Joseph had ever experienced before. But they were only fitting for the one that they were giving it to. These men don't stay long. In fact, by verse 12, they're already gone. And here we see God's sovereign and providential protection of his son, even utilizing something as unique as a dream to warn them about Herod's true intentions to put the child to death. They want no part of that scheme, and so they go home another way. They reroute their return trip and go a different direction. You know, I found it interesting that the first two groups to worship Jesus in the Gospels, think about this. The first two groups that the scriptures, the Gospels record as those coming to worship Jesus are who? The humble, lowly shepherds and the most high ranking outside officials from the Gentile world. Again, isn't that fascinating? And I think this truth points us to the final thing that we must consider this morning, that God's gift of salvation, God's gift of salvation has been made available to everyone, to all of us. This chapter is a a snapshot picture of a salvation that has been made available to you and to me. And the truth is, according to Scripture, we too are Gentile outsiders. Probably not as rich as those ones, but we are Gentile outsiders, right? But the good news is that God's plan of salvation included the reach of God's light to all peoples. In fact, Jesus himself said that at the end of of Matthew's gospel. In chapter 28, he would say, now go, share this good news with all people, right? Right? Baptizing them, teaching to obey. Tell others about me. And thus we get a snapshot of that here. That those from the farthest reaches of the world were coming to delight and to rejoice in the coming king and savior. Not just the king of Israel. Not just the savior of Israel. But the king And the Savior of all peoples. That is the joy that has been made available to every single one of us here this morning. Perhaps the greatest gift that you can receive this Christmas is Jesus Himself. Perhaps the greatest gift that you can give to yourself or to your family is to repent. To repent of your pride that has, seeked, uh, that has sought to suppress the truth for so long. That the greatest gift that you can give is not anything that you give away, but what you surrender. That you would let go of the indifference that you have held on to for so long towards who Jesus is. That instead, in humility, You would follow in the steps of the Magi and you would receive and you would rejoice at the gift of God's promised salvation in Christ Jesus. Wouldn't that be amazing this Christmas season? Praise God for his insurpassable gift that he has given to us. Let's pray. And Father, we do thank you We thank you for the gift of Jesus that you have lavished so freely upon us. We know that you have given Christ that our joy may be complete. The truth is, Lord, apart from Christ, we lack any sense of true and lasting joy in this world. The things of this world will never satisfy. And Lord, honestly, to rule and to reign over our own lives will not bring lasting joy either. We need a king. We need someone to rule in place of our own sinful hearts to bring us into everlasting joy and we know that that person is Christ. And I pray that if there's any here this morning who have suppressed that, who have sought to silence that reality, that you would humble their hearts this morning, that you would choose, Lord, the weak and the rebellious heart to be the one that comes to you today so that too might partake in the blessing of knowing you as their king. We thank you for this gift that we get to celebrate today, and even as we sing now, Lord, please encourage our hearts as we delight in the gift of Jesus Christ. We pray, amen.